This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Honor the victims, celebrate the heroes. That's Genius Book Publishing's approach to true crime. Covering some of the most important cases in crime worldwide, our books never glorify the killers. From the Melissa Witt case all the way to the Golden State Killer and the Zodiac, if you're looking for solid, meticulously researched, thrilling true crime, look no further than Genius Book Publishing's catalog of titles. Visit GeniusTrueCrime.com for the best true crime books available. Also available on Amazon, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, and iTunes. Hi, I'm Alicia Lockhart. And I'm LaDonna Humphrey. We're the co-hosts of the Deep Dark Secrets podcast. We have some really exciting news to share with you. This May, we're headed to True Crime Fest Northwest Arkansas. That's right, I'm so excited. True Crime Fest Northwest Arkansas is happening on May 20th in Rogers, Arkansas. And we're going to be joining podcasters like Katherine Townsend, Crawl Space, and True Crime Garage, and others to share stories of the missing and murdered, and to reflect on the heroes that are fighting to bring awareness to victims across the United States. True Crime Fest Northwest Arkansas promises to be an exciting event that supports a great cause. All the ticket sales benefit All the Lost Girls, which is a nonprofit founded in honor of Melissa Witt. We hope you'll make plans to come see us and all of the other amazing advocates that are fighting for justice. For more information and to get your tickets, visit allthelostgirls.org. We'll see you there at True Crime Fest. Donna Humphrey. And I'm Alicia Lockhart. Welcome to Deep Dark Secrets, the podcast that shines a light in some very dark places. Today we have a really great episode lined up for you. We've invited two special guests, Jennifer Amell and Lance Reensterna from Crawlspace Media. Together, Lance and Jennifer are going to be launching a new podcast called Dark Valley, and we're so excited to have them here today to talk. Welcome. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Great to finally be on your excellent show. Really appreciate it. And, you know, we get to talk about Dark Valley. We get to talk about the death fetish community. Like, what what a great way to start the day. I'm so excited, though. I'm so excited they're here today. I think I've told them before. I'm a big fan of the work they do in the true crime space. And I really appreciate how victim-focused you are. I think that's so important, and I'm just impressed by the work you do. So thank you for being here today. And I'm really anxious to hear more about Dark Valley. So tell us more about that podcast, why you decided to launch the series. Tell us all the things. Tell us everything. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Jen, I just want to jump in real quick before you start, because this has really been Jen's project since early on in, in our discussions in our production of it. But uh, between Jen and I, we also have Tim, 
who's part of Crawl Space Media. The reason why he's not here is where Jen and I will be going to the Northwest Arkansas True Crime Fest on May 20th. So we'll be the representatives for the company. I just didn't want to lose Tim in the mix there. He's been a pretty integral part in creating Dark Valley as well. Oh, yeah. Shout out to Tim. Hey, Tim. <laughs> we love Tim, too. Woo-hoo! He's good. Now, now he won't get mad. It's not so easy. <laughs> now I can keep our jobs. Da, da, da. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to give you, you know, a brief rundown of what Dark Valley is about. I just want to say uh, Lance has a really interesting kind of origin story to how we came across these cases. So I'm definitely going to kick it over to him for that. But first, Dark Valley is an investigative series from Crawl Space Media and Glassbox Media. And it pretty much goes over the Connecticut River Valley cases, uh, which were in New Hampshire and Vermont during the decade of the 1980s. And what makes this show unique is that there was one survivor of this serial killer. Her name is Jane Borowski, and she and I have teamed up to investigate eight additional murders and try to bring some justice to these women. Oh, wow. That's important. I'm excited about this series and I love anybody that's fighting for justice. So you guys have all my support. This is going to be really incredible. Thank you so much. Yes, we're very excited too. Our show is premiering on June 16th, 2023. So pretty soon. But Lance, I would love for you to tell how you came across this story. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me on that. Because when we have interviews and the question is presented, what was the first thing that attracted you to true crime? I have like multiple ones and there's two that I always say, but until we started producing Dark Valley and speaking to Jane Borowski, I didn't realize that the Connecticut River Valley murders and her attack specifically, that's one of the three moments in my childhood that I didn't remember until we were talking to Jane. So I need to start including this. Back when I was around 11 years old, I remember I have a specific memory of my father walking into the kitchen with a newspaper and said some poor girl in Keene was just stabbed and they had to hold her together with a pillow. And I remember that moment really vividly. And that never really entered my thoughts until we first sat down and had an in-person meeting with Jane, in-person conversation, and it was recorded. And she talked about her attack and she talked about how she made it to her friend's house and her friend came out and they put a pillow on her stomach to slow the bleeding down. And when she said that, I was like taken back to my kitchen at 11 years old, my dad saying this. And I'm like, that's the woman my dad was talking about. She's sitting right across from me. And I said after for like a full two minutes, I didn't hear a word Jane said because I was like, thinking about that moment and just blown away that this is the woman that was instrumental in her survival in what I do today. And I had to call my sister to confirm that that moment happened. I'm like, I didn't make that up in my head, right? You remember our father saying that a woman was stabbed in Keene, New Hampshire, and they had to put a pillow on her to hold her together, to keep the blood. Yeah. He said, hold her together. And she was like, oh yeah, yeah. I'm like, you're not going to believe this. I'm with that woman right now. And she's like, what? Like, what are you doing with this woman? Like, that's Jane Borowski, the last surviving attack victim of the Connecticut River Valley murders. And she was like, just astounded. Not, not to the point where I was, but really remarkable moment and just kind of sideswiped me. Wow. Yeah, I would imagine that's one of those moments. It's like everything kind of comes together. It's all come full circle with 
what you heard as a child, now what you're doing for a living. So that's a pretty amazing story. And I'm glad she's okay. I mean, what was that interaction like with her? Is there a lot of trauma still? I mean, I'm curious to how she is today. Oh, Jen would be a great person to follow up. <laughs> that's because they've been through some shit together now. That's true. I mean, not the kind of shit that Jane went through. I mean, her survival story is harrowing. She was kind of blindsided, like blitz attacked by this strange man in a country store parking lot. She was stabbed 27 times while seven months pregnant. And she picked herself up off the ground and drove herself to safety. What a badass. It's an incredible tale. I know. What a badass. Uh, seriously. And so courageous to, to kind of come out of the, I don't want to say come out of the closet, but like it's been 36 years and she still doesn't have answers and she still lives in fear that if she, you know, becomes this public personality again, that she'll become a target because this guy is still out there. But that initial meeting between Jane, myself, Lance and Tim was just like kind of magical. She's the loveliest woman. And she would be the first one to say that like, yeah, there's still trauma. She's still working through like pretty intense PTSD from her attack. But she'd also say that she's been through a lot of trauma counseling and she's now finally in a place of healing where she's able to to talk about it again. It's not hard to imagine that kind of um, experience taking a lifetime to heal through. That is so intense. And oh my gosh, she has all my respect for being brave enough to talk about it at all with anybody. Because as you said, that person's still out there and it probably does put her in a really weird position where she like really wants to advocate and help and share her story. But yeah, that's a really big risk, a danger, just knowing that he is out there still. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think like beyond solving her own case and getting answers and stuff, I think Jane is really motivated by learning about the other women who didn't survive. She has kind of positioned herself as like a voice for the voiceless and speaking for the dead. And throughout the course of I want to say like almost two and a half years of production and investigation into these cases, I can, you know, safely say that we have come to know these women. We've come to know their friends, their families, the investigators that worked on their cases. It's been quite a journey. Sounds like it. I mean, she's brave and she's taking on something, not knowing where the killer is. Is he still alive? Is he still out there? And I'm kind of interested to know about more of the crimes that were connected to this, the other people that she's speaking Four that you mentioned, like the voice for the voiceless. I'm curious about those crimes because, you know, one of the things, as you know, that we cover on our show, our first season is all about death fetish. And we've done so much investigation into that community. And one of the, I guess, subsets of that culture are these death fantasy predators, death fetish predators, whatever you want to call them, that are obsessed with stabbing and that particular type of murder. So it intrigues me a little bit because I'd like to know a little bit more about that, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, absolutely. As we mentioned, Jane's attack was a stabbing attack. And all the other connected cases, either officially or unofficially, are also knife murders. Lots of overkill, but no signs of sexual assault. But this is a topic that we touch on pretty heavily throughout the series. Uh, we were fortunate enough to get the original criminal profiler on these cases. His name is Dr. John Philpin, and he speaks at length about 
the sexual nature of knife murders, like where there doesn't have to necessarily be a physical sexual assault for it to be sexually motivated, if you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. We actually have been a little astounded in our research because there's all sorts of death fetishes. Like some people only watch videos of women drowning while other people have strangulation. And the area of the death fetish forums where people are talking about stabbing and that sort of fantasy, it's interesting because a lot of the videos that we find don't have a sex act in them. And we've been wondering like, well, are these still death fetish pornographies? Do they count as porn? Are they just recording it without a sex act to get around obscenity laws in the videos they're making? But what we've discovered is that there are lots of people in these forums who don't need an overt sex act. Just watching it and fantasizing about it and perhaps, you know, in the cases you're talking about the person who is actually doing it, it could very well be a sexual act without like adding in a traditional sex act to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think not to be like too graphic here, but in a knife attack, it has some psychological similarities to penetration. (laughs) Yeah, like the knife is phallic and you're making um, an entry place. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I don't I see what you're meaning here. You can't go there without being super graphic. I know. I know. Sure. Lance, would you like to weigh in? Yeah, Lance. I gotta say, the reason we're laughing is because it's so uncomfortable to talk about. It is. As the only knife wielder here in the in the group. Tell us. <laughs> you weren't supposed to be the person throwing those curveball questions, Alicia. You're right. <laughs> I mean, it does make sense. And this is something, not to change topics to Sheila Shepard right away, but... This is similar to Sheila Shepard's murder in Saratoga Springs, where she was tied up to the bed, nude, spread eagle, wrists, ankles tied with her own material, like uh, shoelaces and a a sash from a robe. And there was no obvious sexual attack, but it was a sexual crime. And I think you learn something pretty much every day the more you do this. And when someone is referencing, especially a professional in, that field is referencing a murder or an attack and calling it sexual, the first thing you think about is like the physical act of sex and forcible sex. But there's a lot of things that go on in someone's psychology that makes, for instance, stabbing somebody 27 times a sexual act. And as a guy, to answer your question the best I can, I don't condone or relate to it, but I can understand that, that maybe there's something that isn't happening sexually for this guy that he has to express it violently through stabbing like maybe impotence or maybe he's struggling with his own sexuality i think a lot of these guys that we see in the death fetish forums they talk about these abusive relationships that they had with their mother they were bullied as a child i think there's a lot of like what you said psychology that goes behind it on why then that becomes something that is so sexually motivated for them. And that's one of the things, I'm just going to be honest, that has frightened us so much about our work into the death fetish industry is because so many of these films that exist, there is not an actual sexual component to it. And we watch inside these forums, these people talking back and forth about these particular films and, you know, how excited they are about it and, you know, how much they like the idea of somebody being stabbed in the belly over and over and over again. 
I mean, it's motivated us to try to put a stop to that particular industry because we think that it is encouraging those people who not only have that psychology behind them to feel sexually motivated by what they're seeing, but also then to go carry out those acts. And I think that there are potentially lots of cases out there. Lance, you and I have even talked about Sheila Shepard that very well could be related to the death fetish community. Yeah, absolutely. And given the time frame when Sheila was murdered, this was in the early 80s. So there wasn't those forums that this person was checking and communicating with a community in that sense, the way you're monitoring it today. So however this was happening in this person's mind when he attacked and killed Sheila was motivated by something that was a little bit more self-contained or self-driven, I guess. Like meaning, again, he didn't have those I'm saying he, but they didn't have those other factors contributing or encouraging in an online community. I think as we've continued to explore just what death fetish is and the communities, that we are starting to make bigger connections and be able to look at other cases and say, well, even if that person wasn't part of the forum or we don't have their username, this is still clearly a case that looks like the murderer had a death fetish or a death fantasy and likely did for years and years before they acted on it, as we see in these forums today. So it's just interesting to have that kind of rattling around in the back of your head. For me, it's like a new lens to look at different cases through. Now that I know what death fetish is, I can't unsee it in the true crime world. Yeah, and I think I would like to talk a little bit more about the Sheila Shepard case, if you can share as much information with us that you can about it. Because one of the things that Alicia and I had hoped to do is to be able to do some research into that case and potentially go into the forums like you and I had talked about, Lance, and, and see how many people have stories that they're telling because there's a lot of people that are in these forums that are telling stories about what we believe are real life murders or things that they want to do. So I'd like to know a little bit more about Sheila's case, Lance, as much as you can share with us, please. Oh, for sure. Uh, Sheila Shepard's case came to us through the Saratoga Springs, New York Police Department. They have two detectives who are working on the case and they were assigned to Sheila's murder because, and I'm pretty sure this is a fact, it might, might be kind of a debated fact, of, depending on where your geography lands, but she's the only unsolved murder in Saratoga Springs so far. So the two detectives that were assigned to the case were told, do whatever it takes to close this case. And we met them at the Albany, New York ASOC convention a few years ago. And they said, would you be interested in looking into this, talking to us? And it was really unprecedented. I don't know why they chose Tim and myself to go do this. But they did, and we were super grateful. We were able to hang out with them for two days. We went to Saratoga Springs, and they opened up the case file. We spoke with them. We spoke with a retired detective, someone who had worked on her case extensively. So we had two generations in there. And the details of her case is that Sheila Shepard had recently moved back to Saratoga Springs. She had a child, and she was murdered on November 23rd, 1980. And she was nude. She was tied to her bed, spread eagle style, and she was covered with a sheet and she had a post-mortem stab wound. The knife was still in her stomach, probably two inches underneath her navel. And that was post-mortem, which is really interesting. And there were details about the crime scene itself that 
stood out to the investigators, and it's still unsolved. Wow. As you're speaking about that case, I'm immediately getting all these flashes of things I've seen in the death fetish community, just about the belly stench. And like LaDonna said, that's one of the most popular locations for the people that have the stabbing death fetishes. And I don't think that we've ever really seen a clear explanation as to why belly stabs or navel stabs are so sexual for the people that are in those forums. But yeah, as you're saying that, I'm like, wow, that really, especially with it being post-mortem. Yeah, she was suffocated by her blouse and she was a victim of asphyxiation. That was the official cause of death. So that stab wound in the stomach is pretty interesting when you're trying to break down like the scenario in which she was murdered, right? Like, was it accidental? Was it intentional? And then what is it about that stab wound in the stomach? That smacks of death fetish to me. And there's a user that was in the forums. I'm wondering if Alicia was thinking about this too. And he was pretty scary. And I think he's kind of disappeared. But his posts were frightening, I think, even amongst the fetishers. And he went by belly stabs. Alicia, do you remember him? I remember seeing a few things by him that were disturbing. But the reason why that user really stands out in my head is because when we had some conversations with some of the website owners. I do remember a few of them saying, oh, all the all the people in these forums are harmless except for that user. Like, we're concerned about him. Wow. Yeah, that is. I mean, this is like a living nightmare for us on a regular basis. And I think that the rest of the world would feel that way, too, if you know, they knew that this was going on in this dark little shanty part of the Internet where these people are glorifying murder. And I think that the investigation into those communities is so important, not just for the Sheila Shepard case, but a lot of these unsolved crimes and these guys that are still out there because they could very well be in those forums talking about the things that they do, or they could be getting inspiration from those forums. I just don't think that that's like a big stretch to think that that's happening more often than people want to believe. Think about how sometimes murderers who haven't been apprehended yet are really, I guess, like cocky about sort of leaving little breadcrumbs or leaving little clues places. And so like you're saying, it's not hard to imagine somebody who got away with a murder in the 80s reliving in that location, like writing quote unquote fictional stories about doing that to somebody. Some of them are so detailed. Like, how could you even know what that would sound like or feel like? It's eerie how detailed some of the fictional stories are in there. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Where is the line between fantasy and reality for these people? You guys have probably talked about this at length on Deep Dark Secrets, but uh, I'm wondering if you can kind of educate me on what the difference is between like a healthy kink and this community. I'm going to kick that one over to Alicia because... If I don't, I'm going to get on my soapbox and you guys are all going to regret it like big time. I'll let you take a stab at it, Alicia. Oh, well, that's such a good question. And it's something that we talk about and think about a lot because we do get accused of being kink shamers, mainly from the fetishers. But sometimes people on TikTok will comment that. But when I look at what's going on in the death fetish community, the thing that concerns me so much about it is the level of engagement or obsession that's there. Because we spend time in these forums, we notice that there are certain people that are just like online 
every time that you're in there. Or you can see their post count is like up to like 30,000 posts. These people are in this community posting about violent, non-consensual acts, and they're doing it for 10, 12, 14 hours a day. So I think that when you're thinking about what's just kink and then, you know, where, where does that line cross? I think that there's sort of a almost like an escalation process that happens and it doesn't happen overnight. I think that some people do have some sort of kink and that they only play with other people when it's consensual because there are people who do like knife play together in the bedroom. They'll find somebody that's okay with being stabbed while they have sex, which still is wild to me, but they'll start out like that where two people are consenting to these acts and then one person takes control and goes further than the other person agreed to. And there's not a clear answer to that. We don't know how they get to that point where they click over and just do whatever they want. I would wager a guess that it has to do with being desensitized. I think you start out thinking about these things, then you're like writing erotica or making manip, but that's what they call the photos they make in there. <laughs> They'll Photoshop a picture of a woman with a knife in her belly and a bunch of blood. And some of them look realistic. Some of them are super, super cheesy. But you see this person, they sign in. First, they're just lurking. Then they start making the images or writing very detailed erotica. Some of them become producers and they're making films like this. Some of them are meeting up in person with people, consenting people, and then they still go on to murder after that. But some of them don't. So, I mean, it's very hard to gauge where that line is. But what we see in a lot of the cases that tie back to the death fetish community is just that history there of escalation and like needing more and more and more and more. And and some of it you see they are obsessing about death and maybe they are into all of those things, the knife play, the bondage, those things. But then in addition to that, they also talk about cannibalism a lot or just so many factors that are involved in death fetish that. It's actually very frightening. And while we're talking about that, one of the things that I wanted to ask today, because of all of the unsolved cases that are out there, let's just even look at the ones that are just stabbing related. What I'm going to try to do, at least in the state of Arkansas, is to make law enforcement aware of the work that we're doing in the death fetish community to maybe get them thinking that that could very well be a possibility in some of these cold cases. And maybe there's some information in some of those case files that might kind of point towards death fetish or something of the like. Do you think that that's like an impossible task to take on, a worthy task to take on? I want people that are smarter than me to kind of weigh in on this because I do think it's important. And I do think that there are so many law enforcement agencies out there that don't even know that death fetish is a thing. And they don't know that there's this information being shared Sometimes we think about real cases. I mean, we know there was information shared about the Wit case or what we believe to be the Wit case in these forums. So I'm just wondering what you think about that kind of effort and trying to educate law enforcement to see if we can make any kind of connection in some of these cases. <laughs> well, I am by no means smarter than you or Alicia, and I'm by no means an expert in law enforcement. So take this with a grain of salt. And we kind of talked about it before. We've had numerous conversations about this and how it's just like such a gray area, such an uncomfortable space to operate in. 
And I think while it's a worthy cause, I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's like really difficult to introduce this to law enforcement and say, maybe looking into it could be a determining factor for one of your cold cases. Because I feel like recently anyway, I've been noticing people describing their interaction with law enforcement. We just had an interview last night with a mom who was upset that her daughter was dragged out of a bar. She was with her daughter. She was dragged out of the bar by her abusive boyfriend. And she had gotten in between her boyfriend's daughter and, and her. And she put her hand on his chest to tell him to back off. And he looked over to the police who are just parked right down the street and said, she's assaulting me. She's touching me. And he was allowed to take her daughter and leave the scene while the police were questioning the mom and telling her that if she didn't calm down, they would have to detain her. Wrap up this really long aside story with a point. <laughs> I get why the police had to view that in such like a checkboxed black and white type of way. Like there's someone said assault. Now we have to figure out how this is going to be clean paperwork if we have to arrest this woman. We have to do things by the book. And it's just so confusing to me that someone in law enforcement can't look at that situation and say, yeah, this is a mom who's concerned about her daughter. Like, right. yeah, it's not going to be coming from it with a clear head the way we're coming from it. And she doesn't know the letter of the law. So maybe between the two of us, one of us should go over and make sure that the one that she's saying is the abusive boyfriend doesn't leave the scene. But neither of them did. So my long winded point is that I think if you bring that to law enforcement, they're going to start thinking, oh, man, this is going to be like constitutional, like freedom of speech rights here. We have to figure out a way to even like get deeper information off of someone's hard drive. Maybe what do we have to do to get like a search warrant for that? I think that they see a lot of that red tape and constitutionality. Is that a word that will come down if they actually start making an effort to crack down on these because it's, it's more straightforward to say this person's a suspect we should be staking this person out for a week straight to see if they're going to slip up it's another thing to like you know say well now we have to go down these forums and then what do we do with it because they're just this is like is it artistic expression like i feel like they just don't know what to do with it i think you're right i had an interesting conversation with nick edwards about this very topic and about death fetish versus how do you police someone's thoughts? And I mean, he asked me that and I had to think about that for a little bit. And nothing that we're trying to do here really is advocating for policing thoughts because that gets into this big hairy thing that we don't want to get into. But I do think that there is some value in at least sharing the message about death fetish is happening they're glorifying murders. You know, let's tighten up these federal obscenity laws to prevent some of this. And I think there's some value in at least that educational process so people know that it exists. Right now, it's, and Alicia can talk about this a little bit too, because she spends a lot of time digging into the different laws across the United States. All of the states have different laws when it comes to obscenity in their state, and then there are federal obscenity laws. So, Alicia, if you'll explain that, then maybe we can kind of dig into that and, and talk about maybe by tightening down on the federal obscenity laws, we can maybe draw some attention to this problem with death fetish. And maybe that's a way that law enforcement would become a little bit more educated on that this is a possibility because these people are talking about murder. And sometimes we believe real murders. And I think that there are solutions to cold cases within those forums. 
And I told you, if you let me talk too much, I get on my soapbox and I can't stop. So there you go. Like Lance is saying too, it's such a gray area and it's time consuming to go through those things. And it almost seems like the most helpful thing I can think of at this point is just having people who have knowledge about cold cases or unsolved cases who can connect those dots and like, I guess, just submit tips one by one based on what you're seeing or reading. But then it does become this weird thing where it's like, well, we don't even know who is behind that screen name and if they are a viable suspect or not. But I do think that the ones that seem very detailed and pointed towards a specific case, I do think it's worth checking into to figure out, does that person live in that area or is there any way they are a suspect? Because it just seems all too easy for a murderer who's um, at large to just go in there and kind of treat it like a little journal spot or something or a bragging place. And I do think that's a resource for law enforcement. But yeah, it's absolutely a weird gray area as to how they could use that efficiently just without spending tons and tons of time reading through all that disgusting stuff that we see. You did ask about the laws and yeah, the laws in different states vary greatly in terms of what uh, you can create as a piece of art and what's obscene and not obscene. The thing that we can do that would be most impactful would be to kind of alter what the punishments or enforcements are for federal obscenity laws so that we could at least get those videos and websites off the surface web, off the deep web, so that they're not influencing people who are in kind of a bad mental space. I also think that it's such a weak, tropey type counter argument to say, well, if you start there, where's it going to end? If you're taking away those videos, I mean, where's it going to end? It's going to be a police state by the time it's done. Like, no, there's compromise every day. Like, there'll be compromise. It's not going to be like, they'll take away your Netflix neck. There'll be (laughs) guidelines. You know, everything's so gradual. It doesn't go from zero to 60, especially when you're talking about human rights. Like, yeah, there'll be guidelines. There should be guidelines on what is crossing the line in terms of creating these videos like it, there has to be or else whatever. I mean, speaking of soapboxes, I'll stop. It really just it goes back to like there needs to be better training in law enforcement to deal with circumstances that change over the course of time. Like things change over 50 years, 60 years, 100 years. You can't be doing the same thing when technology and the way people interact with each other changes on a daily basis. Like you have to go back to the drawing board and retrain to deal with that. Absolutely. And I want to piggyback on that for just a second, because I think there's some nuance here. It's not like black and white, like we want to go and take down these forums and take down these videos and stuff where maybe that would be ideal. It's like my great hope that law enforcement is evolving in their investigatory techniques. So spreading awareness about this community is so important within the law enforcement community because they can still go on these forums and search for posts or stories or imagery or whatever that kind of maps on to a cold case that they're working on. And that doesn't require a warrant. I'm not law enforcement myself, so I'm not sure if pulling an IP requires a a warrant, but you don't need a warrant to talk to somebody if you find someone's identity. You're right. And I think that that is probably the avenue in which 
I would personally like to see this go because, and I'm only talking about cold cases really right now. The reason why I think that's important, well, there's, there's lots of reasons, but, and I'm really going to try to keep it as concise as possible. But when Alicia and I first started this journey and we were investigating, there was a website that we were really interested in. It was called Fet Noir. And when these fetishers that owned the website found out that we were investigating, they took the site down. It came down and it came down because they knew very well there were crimes happening within that forum. And whether that was people talking about real murder, there were real snuff films, there was trafficking. We know there was child pornography deep within this website. And so we know that these places are hubs for real crime. We know that. And so it stands to reason that if some law enforcement agency somewhere hears our podcast and they say, oh my gosh, we've got this cold case. There's some things that, you know, ring true for us if they do exactly what you said, Jennifer, and just start poking around and seeing what kind of information they can pull. I think that could be really, really important because, you know, that's what got, got us started on this journey is just this late that we felt like could be between, you know, a 1994 murder case, that of Melissa Witt, and the death fetish community. I mean, that's how I found out about this to begin with. And look what kind of evolved from that. And so I think there's some real value in law enforcement, at least being educated and taking notice that this is happening online. Absolutely. I want to ask a quick question about what was it? Fet Noir was the website? Yeah. Yes. So they took their site down. Did you guys consider that a win or did you want to like pull information from that site? I was frustrated when it came down because I was like, oh, I'm not done looking around here. I want to see what else is here. But it did kind of feel like a win at the same time because it really told us that we were on to something. We didn't think they would do that unless there was an immense amount of illegal activity going on in there. And the reason why we didn't think they would do that is because this Fet Noir site, it was a pretty large community. It had been online for 12 years. There was this huge upset about the forum coming down. On one of the other death fetish forums, people had started a thread about Fet Noir and they were really, really angry about the site coming down so abruptly. People were calling out the site owner, saying like, this seems kind of fishy. We don't feel like we're getting the whole story here. So even the death fetish forum users could tell that the website owner was not being super transparent about what was going on. She wasn't being honest about why the forum had to come down. So there were just a lot of people talking on that thread in a different death fetish community where people were just saying, this is our community, it's our home, how could you take it away from us with no explanation? This is messed up. So it's just super interesting to look at that and be like, hmm, the owners of Fet Noir are not being honest with the people that use their site every single day about why they had to take it down. And we feel like that tells us a lot. LaDonna, I want to hear you answer that question. What about you? How did you feel? I mean, yes and no. I did cheer for a while because I was excited to see it leave. But, you know, we had been spending a lot of time screenshotting and taking video within the website of information and taking note of screen name. I was glad that we did that before, you know, they took it down and that helped in our investigation later on down the road. So I think it was a little bit of both. 
And I think it was that moment that I really realized that there was some really bad shit going down in those websites and that particular one, or they wouldn't have taken it down. There would be no reason. If it's just fantasy, why take it down? And what, you know, we've since found out that that owner of that particular website, who's one of our biggest fans, I might add, I say that tongue in cheek, she also has stake in shock and gore websites that show real life deaths, meaning accident scenes, morgue scenes, everything that you can imagine. And so that's not fantasy. So, she, you know, you asked this question earlier, Jennifer, about that line between reality and fantasy. And she's definitely crossed it because she's got one foot in each camp. That's what scares the hell out of me. And that's why I think if we can hone in on some cases like Sheila Shepherds and others and maybe go to law enforcement and say, hey, let us help you. We're already working undercover in these forums. Let me see if we can find any information that could potentially point back to this case or let us show you how to do it. I think there's a lot of value in that because I'm convinced that there are answers to cases within those forums. And it keeps me up at night. It really does. I mean, it haunts me a great deal to know that this community exists. And, and I always wonder what the reaction is of other people. So I'm curious to hear from both Jennifer and Lance. What was your reaction when you heard about Death Fetish? When read our book or listened to the podcast. I mean, were you shocked? Had you heard of it before? I mean, what were your thoughts? I had heard about it before. I mean, I'd, I'd heard the term, but like pretty much everybody else who hears that death fetish, if it doesn't stimulate you, you don't really look into it. If you're not directly affected by it, you don't look into it. So when I heard death fetish, I never really had the desire to or the it, it was not a requirement to dig into that any deeper than I had to because I know what's probably going to be on the other side. And when I read the books and we had our conversations, it is terrifying. And it's like obviously terrifying. But I think what the other thing that's really hard to like wrap your head around, it gets all tangled up, is like, how do you try to maintain it and control it and not not I don't know where do you how do you set those guidelines? See, it's, it's really tough for me to even articulate it because you don't want to take away someone's right to express themselves. But there's like a really fine line. So. Yeah, I think upon hearing it the first time and reading your books and our conversations, I don't know if I'm ever going to be fully in the camp of like, I get it. I understand what this is. The way you can be with a, a straight up missing person, for example, you know, there's there's a there's a line there that you can understand outside of the mystery of the person being missing, whether it's like family situation or boyfriend situation or whatever, jobs, mental health. I think that it's so frustrating to me that you can't put your finger on something specific with death fetish. I agree. Yeah. And as for myself, I mean, I imagine that there's stuff that exists on the internet for every kind of perversion. But my first introduction to death fetish was listening to Tim and Lance talk about their interview with you two. Uh, I think it was back in February uh, for Crawl Space. And I was like fascinated. And of course, like, disturbed and uncomfortable by the topic or whatever definitely didn't look further same as Lance but I did spend some time listening to Deep Dark Secrets and I think it's a fascinating area to explore and as we've touched on before a pretty vital part of investigations it seems so I just want to applaud both of you for your courageous and important work thank oh, you thank so you. much for acknowledging that it's definitely a, 
a dark topic, but we both just feel so strongly called to it. And we want to see a way that we can use it to help other people, however that winds up being. And it's definitely an uncomfortable topic. I mean, it just is. And we're not obviously secretive about it or our investigation. I mean, we have a podcast for crying out loud, but it's also, you know, changed our lives to a great degree. You know, outside of the death threats, just normal everyday life is no longer the same. I don't go to a PTO meeting at the kids' school anymore without people like, oh, that's the lady that does the death fetish podcast and get some questions. But it's worth it to me because I do feel like there is a need for that education piece. And there is a need for us as a nation to figure out where that line is. I don't know that I have the answer for that either on what should be allowed and what shouldn't be. I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that we've got groups of people who are spending hours and hours of their time online in these communities. And many of those people go on to kill real women. And that to me is something that we've got to figure out how to stop. And I hope that our podcast can play some sort of role in finding those solutions and making some changes because there definitely has to be some change. Absolutely. And I think to uh, just circle back to what Jen was saying about applause to YouTube for taking this on, that's one of the main reasons why we decided to go to the Northwest Arkansas True Crime Fest that you're hosting and organizing because your show and your mission, both of you are amongst the handful of content creators who are actually doing something proactively and not, hopefully I'm not going to offend people, but who aren't operating off of information that they got on like Wikipedia and they tell the story of this true crime case and they move on to the next. And that's fine. But what you two are doing deserves the support and it deserves to have a platform in any way, a podcast, a festival. And yeah, I mean, just to, again, circle back to what Jen was saying, the work you're doing is super important and well, dangerous. <laughs> yeah, dangerous. Yes, it is. And I, you know, I make jokes about it sometimes on the podcast because I have to deal with this stuff with humor. Otherwise, you just fall into this dark hole because it can be so depressing and frightening. But, you know, I'm glad that you said that because for me personally, I feel like, especially in this space, the true crime space, that it's got to be more than just storytelling. It has to be the advocacy. It has to be victim focused. It has to be the support of the victims, all of those things. And so, that was one of the reasons why we created the fest and then handpicked the people like yourselves that are also coming to the fest because we feel the same way about you and the work that you do. It is important and it is noteworthy. And what we want to do in the true crime space is to make a difference. And that's what I hope happens with True Crime Fest. So I'm excited about that and I'm excited that you're coming. And I'm excited to see what you're going to do with Dark Valley. I cannot wait until that launches. Yeah, I'm really excited to be able to listen to that too. And I feel like that project that you two are embarking on has the same flavor. It has that same advocacy-focused energy. And I think that people kind of shifting their focus in the true crime community towards that direction is just such a, a much-needed change. So thank you for acknowledging that and our worth. And we totally acknowledge that in your worth, too. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, we're so excited to be part of the Northwest Arkansas True Crime Fest. I think it's going to be a blast and hopefully educational as well. Yeah, 
it's going to be great to see everybody there. And hopefully that will be the essence of the whole festival because that's our intention. But I do see we're kind of going up there in minutes. So I'm going <laughs> to go ahead and thank you two just for coming on and talking with us about these super dark topics and about your new project. And we cannot wait to see you in like, I guess it's like a week now almost, right? Yeah, something like that. 10 days. I was just going to say, I'm pretty sure LaDonna has it down to the minute. Yeah. 10 days. I am counting down. I just posted something funny on Instagram about what my life is like right now. But yeah, 10 days. I cannot wait. And thank you again for being on the show. You're some of my personal favorites. Tim, too, even though he's not here. Shout out to him again. So he's not sad that he missed this. But thank you for being here today. And as always, thank everyone else for tuning in. We appreciate each and every one of our listeners and please join us next week as we continue in our fight against the death fetish community and our efforts to expose them. Stay safe, everyone. And remember, keep your lights on. For exclusive content from this episode and all other episodes, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash deep dark secrets. Sign up and you'll be able to see some visuals that accompany each episode.